This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. This is the last edition for 2021. Jason Rouseville here. Joined as always by Dylan Ray, and we have today with us bow hunter extraordinaire Dennis Dunn to share some time and some stories with us. Dennis, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. It's you know you and I have had the the or I've had the privilege of meeting you several times and and hearing some of your stories and man, you've got a bunch, way more than we could get to in an hour. But we thought it would be great to have you on, uh, tell people, you know, about some of your bow hunting experiences and, you know, we'll just start off. How long have you been, have you been a bow hunter? Well, ever since I was old enough to, uh, uh, hunt squirrels at age 10, when my family moved to Mercer Island in the middle of Lake Washington near Seattle, that's when I started bow hunting small game, but I never had any hunters in my family to mentor me into hunting. Huh. To be honest with you. <clears throat> I guess I got introduced to it through the back door of archery because when I was five years old, mother came home one day with a toy set of bow and arrows she bought at Bartell's drugstore with rubber cups on the ends of the arrows. And uh, she glued a concentric ring target that came with a set on the back of the bathroom door and said I could shoot down the hallway if I closed all the other doors in the hallway. And uh, I found that was uh, pretty neat. And then uh, a year or two later, at age seven, I think, she sent me off to summer camp uh, where they had real uh, bows and arrows with steel tips, and I got addicted to archery, and then I spent the next uh, 
eight, nine, ten years fantasizing about how much, how cool it must have been for Indians uh, in the old days to sneak around through the forest with bow and arrow in hand and sneak up on a deer or an elk. And, and I couldn't wait till uh, age 16 and a driver's license emancipated me and I could drive over to eastern Washington where I thought the deer lived. The mule deer were over there. I didn't know at that time that we had uh, Columbia blacktails in the thick vegetation all around us in western Washington. Wow. So so that's been a few years then. That's been a few years. <laughs> like that was, that was uh, 71 years ago. Wow. That's fantastic. Well, and you've accomplished quite a bit in, in those 71 years. So have you taken you? It's my understanding is you've taken all 29 with the bow, correct? That's right. Uh, when I completed the Super Slam in the fall of 04, it was the seventh archery Super Slam of the 29 North American species, but the first to be done without any sights attached to my bows for aiming, just purely instinctive shooting. Now, um, I need to make it clear to, to those uh, watching or listening that. Uh, throughout um, the better part of 30 years of my life, maybe 35, I hunted with a compound because once it came out, um, I got seduced like so many other people by the uh, the advantages of a flatter trajectory and a faster arrow speed and, and being able to hold it full draw longer, you know, because of the let off. Um, but 16 years ago, I decided to go back to my roots in traditional archery. Uh, and in the last 16 years, I haven't hunted with anything but a a long bow, a recurve, or a self bow. Uh, and your my and and your goal is to get all twenty nine with with that with a long bow or a traditional style bow. And you're no, you're, not not exactly that. I won't okay. live long enough to do that. But uh, what I've been trying to do ever since I completed the the Super Slam in the fall of '04, I counted up those species of mine where my best of the species either measured up to Pope and Young quality or it didn't. And there were 12 that did not measure up. So gotcha. the one remaining goal I set for myself, and I realized that I might never get there, but that I'd have a lot of fun trying, uh, was to see if I couldn't upgrade those 12 species and end up with all 29 in the Pope and Young records with purely instinctive shooting. But wow. as I said, I didn't make my 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 goal any easier to reach uh, when, when you set the bar that high. Uh, once I made made up my mind, I was going to do it either with with traditional bows or not at all. Nice. And how many do you have left to go of the twenty nine? Just one. Just one. Yeah. And that was uh, that was booked, right? And that is the the Alaskan Bearing Ground Caribou. Outstanding. It seems to be been my nemesis. I think I've hunted that species ten times, but um, uh, after I took a a young animal the first time along the way towards claiming the super slam. Uh, I've never had a, a chance at a real trophy quality bull. I've passed up a, several that would have scored maybe 310, 315, but not 325, which is Pope and Young minimum. And so, uh, you know, once you set your sights on a goal, if you decide to, to lower the bar and settle for something less, I mean, the only way you ever shoot a record book animal is to pass up everything that doesn't measure up. Yeah. So, uh, most of my hunts in recent years, I've gone out there and come back without ever having drawn my bow and released an arrow. That's that's dedication to to getting it done and and getting your goals achieved. Well, I almost got it done this last August September. If I could tell you a little bit about that story, I uh, I spent 25 days in the Alaskan bush in the Alaska Range hunting with an outfitter named Coke Wallace, uh, Midnight Sun Safaris, and. Uh, 
uh, he was he was turned on by the idea that uh, I had a chance to do something that would make history, and uh, he wanted in the worst way to help me. So um, he said, "I'll tell you what, uh, you you pay me my regular one week fee for a caribou hunt, and I'll let you stay up there and hunt as long as it takes until you get the job done." So I was full of hope and and had every reason to believe that with that kind of a an attitude from the outfitter that that uh, sooner or later the good lord would favor me with an opportunity and and he did but the problem is that on the 12th day of that 25 days i was bushwhacking my way up a steep short little hill through some especially nasty willows uh, one evening having come back down from a about a thousand foot climb we made up into the high country way above timberline and uh, as i shoved off from my left foot to try and punch the right one further up the hill I couldn't see anything down around my feet. It was all by feel, but I thought I had a solid purchase on a solid branch and the sole slid backwards on me off the branch and the heel plummeted into a dark hole underneath it, tried to make my toes touch my kneecap. Well, that doesn't work very well. And I, I badly tore that left calf muscle in that freak fall. And it was excruciatingly painful. And I was, I was totally lame the rest of that hunt, but I stuck it out. I stayed in the bush another 11 days just just a feeling that we were in such a strategic location in this spike camp where two uh, forks, uh, two branches of the drainage, we were right up underneath the Moody Pass. And uh, there were two different branches to the drainage that met just about 100 yards below where we had pitched our tent. And a big, a long finger ridge came down out of the high country between the two drainages. And uh, we were so strategically placed uh, in terms of past history from what the outfitter had observed over the years, he felt that if we just stayed put there, uh, eventually a trophy quality bull would um, meander past and give me a crack at him. And that did in fact happen on the 24th day. Wow. Uh, we saw this bull come down out of the high country, uh, spent all day coming down to uh, the creek bottom where we were. And then he spent uh, almost an hour feeding less than a hundred yards from our tent. And I was strategically placed on the tip end of that finger ridge uh, my butt on the edge of where it dropped off the last 20 feet down to the level where the creek bottom was. And I knew that that bull was either going to feed across the, the plain there and across our branch of the creek and give me a crack at him at close range, or he was going to go up onto the finger ridge. I knew if he went that way, it would be harder for me to, to get there in time. Unfortunately, he did. He went up onto that finger ridge, but I knew exactly where he was going. And I got up on my feet put an arrow on the bowstring and I was hobbling as fast as I could hobble to get there to the perfect ambush spot. But he beat me to it. Uh, if I'd had two sound legs underneath me, I'd have been there in plenty of time and I would have stopped about 10, 15 yards short of where I knew he was going to pop out and been at full draw waiting for him. But as it was, he popped out 33 yards from me. We measured it later and I was still in motion. And though I had an arrow on the string, he caught that motion out of the corner of his eye and bolted yeah. instantly. And so I never even had a chance to plant my feet and, and release an arrow. And that was it. So I told my guide, I said, you know, the next morning I said, the good Lord gave me my chance. And I wasn't quite in a position to take advantage of it. But uh, I said, you better call for the horses. And so the next morning we rode back to base camp. And the next day I flew out. I dodged a big bullet because a winter blizzard came in that next day. And it turned out that when the pilot went back after he flew me out to civilization to Healy, Alaska, he went back to get uh, some more hunters and got marooned in there for four days with a huge, huge blizzard. Wow. So I got out in the nick of time and dodged a bullet. Yeah. 
So what, what a story is sticking it out and, and almost getting it done. Almost. Yeah. Well, so I, the good Lord has, has pulled so many miracles out of a hat for me in the last, uh, the last half a dozen years. I, I can't believe he's, he's willing to abandon me at this point. So God willing, <laughs> if I'm still in good enough health and I'm happy to say my calf muscle has, has repaired itself to the point where I, I, I seem to be able to hike normally now and I'm, I'm, I'm walking without a limp and no pain. And so if everything else goes well and my health stays good, uh, uh, I expect to be back up in Alaska next uh, August, uh, September and, and uh, make another all out effort for it. Wow. That's fantastic. Now you said he, you later found out it was 33 yards. Is that, is that in your range for the equipment you're shooting? What's your ideal it's the outer lip. It's the outer limit of it. Uh, I'm shooting a 59, 60 pound recurve made by Steve Gore from Arlington, Washington, uh, Cascade Archery. And at my 31 inch draw, that's what I pull is about 60 pounds. But I, I take that back. I, I, I misspoke. That's what I used on my bison. When I spent 71 days in the summer of 2020 in a bison blind, uh, little uh, double bull blind just outside the Grand Canyon National Park. I was shooting that 60 pound bull, but for this caribou hunt and given my age, I dropped down to uh, a 52 pound bow, a black widow bow that was made for me quite a few years ago by Ken Beck. Gotcha. So yeah, it, it, I got to spend some time in an antelope camp this year with some, I'm a, I'm a compound guy. That's, that's as much as I'm willing to limit my, my participation at this point. I, I don't need that. That's enough of a challenge for me at this point. I don't need the extra challenge that you guys tack on, but uh, I did get to spend some time in an antelope camp with, with uh, Andy Carpenter and, and some guys from, from Washington and, and uh, all trad shooters and man, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, they're getting close. I mean, they want them inside 20 yards. Yeah. You is, asked me about my effective range. Um, um, when I shot, when I upgraded my Rocky Mountain elk in uh, September of 015 in Arizona on public land, that was one of those examples where I absolutely know the hand of God guided that arrow all the way to the sweet spot because that bull was walking briskly across in front of me, very slightly quartering away, but I knew he wasn't going to stop, and I didn't, I didn't have time to range it. I never have ranged an animal just before I've shot it. Um, I just had to to uh, raise my bow arm and draw and let the arrow fly. But um, he only went about 150 yards and that was all over. It was uh, turned out to be a 380 bull and uh, wow. bull of a lifetime. I'd never shot a bull elk, anything like that before, but I know darn well that I had some providential assistance from on high or it never would have happened. Normally I, 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 I practice out to 40 yards uh, with my recurve. Um, and I feel really confident uh, out to 25 and pretty darn confident at 30. So a bit beyond 30, that's pushing it. I'd have to say if I knew that I wasn't going to get another chance, let's say it was the last day of the hunt and I had a standing broadside shot at that caribou bull at 33 yards. And if he did not know I was there, so I didn't figure he was likely to jump the string, I would take that shot and have a, a probably an 80% chance or better of, of putting the arrow through the ribcage. But you know, 80% is not 100%. So you don't take those kind of shots, uh, except in extremis, that when you know um, you're not likely to have another opportunity. Yeah. And and so what's your closest shot been? What, which animal was that on? 
Well, be, to be candid with you, Jason, uh, I'm not a very good shot, and I got to get close. I shot my mountain goat at eight yards, uh, my Rocky Mountain goat. I shot my doll sh sheep in his bed at eight yards. Wow. I shot my stone ram at 11 yards. Um, I shot my grizzly that turned out to be the Pope and Young world record for 10 years. I shot him at eight yards. I shot my Alaskan brown bear at four and a half yards. Wow. So, you asked me in my closest four, shot, I, I'd say four and a half yards. Well, go to, go to my book's website and click on videos, Dylan. You can watch it. It was filmed by my camp cook with my camcorder. And this bear was waiting down a salmon spawning channel um, right past me. His eyes were glued to the water because there were fish teeming everywhere on the surface. And he was belly deep in water. And I had my butt end sitting on the end of a of a log buried in the bank that came out a few inches beyond the end of the steep cut bank there. And my, my boots were three inches from the flow of the water, but there was a log that came out of the water onto the bank, just upstream a couple of feet from me. And I knew that it was a really safe place to ambush this bear or any bear coming down that spawning channel because he would have had to jump out of the water over the log to get at me. So I knew it was a safe place. But when he went past me, he wasn't more than four and a half yards away. And uh, it's it's quite something to watch that video because the guide behind me, he'd never guided a bow hunter before for brown bear. And I don't think he really had that much faith that I could do what I was attempting <laughs> to do with a bow and an arrow. Um, and when you watch the video, my wife was appalled when she saw it after I got home because he's as nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. And he's right behind me with his knees in the small of my back. And he's got his gun right here. And he's moving around just like this. It's just amazing. And I almost turned, I felt like shouting at him, for God's sake, sake, sit still. <laughs> uh, but I drew before the bear ever got out in front of me because I knew that I didn't want him to see that motion out of the corner of his eye. So I was a full draw for 15 or 20 seconds before he was right out in front of me. And then at about four and a half yards, when he pulled that right front leg forward, I let the arrow fly and it went right through him out into the river. Um, oh my gosh, somebody just put that up on the screen, huh? Oh yeah, we're gonna watch it. We can show everybody. Oh, that's the grizzly. That's the grizzly. Yeah, but you gotta go a long ways into that. You got five or six minutes of tape there before you get to the kill. Yeah, they're on my book's website. The one at four and a half yards. We uh, yeah, now yeah, there, there that, that's it. Yeah. Okay. And now let me describe what's happening there. That's the male. He, for, you, you tell by the silhouette of his body underneath, uh, you, you can see his wang dang is hanging down there. And I told my guy, there's no way I'm going to shoot a female. But if you see a uh, a bear that's, uh, you know, a, a full-grown male, uh, I am i don't care about it being a um, uh, even a, a Pope and Young bear. I just want to, I want to end my quest because it was the 29th species for me. Um, I've never shot a female bear, never would. Now you see me on the left there. I'm, I'm, I have that leafy camel on. I'm just getting into position and the guide's not showing there yet. But the camp cook was 15 yards behind us and he suddenly realized the light was flashing and the battery was getting low. So he stops filming and he, and your next scene you're going to see here uh, is when he starts filming again. Now you're going to see the guide has come in behind me, um, right behind me there. Uh, and pretty soon his right arm, he has that gun in his right arm. The second bear we found out was the sister of the male coming down the river. And I'll tell you how we figured that out if you're interested later. Um, see the guy moving around? Yeah. 
<laughs> and it Sit. gets, it gets yeah. worse. Sit still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is pretty dramatic footage, all right. But um, once I put the arrow through the bear, he uh, rushes out of the river and across a, a narrow gravel bar into the forest. He goes through about 15 feet of brush, thick brush, 15 yards of fish br thick, thick brush, and, and then dies on the dead run on a dry gravel bar out beyond it. We waited half an hour before we went to, to follow the trail. He, he only went about 40 yards on a dead run. I suddenly realized that's what that phrase means. When an animal's on the dead run, he's dead on his feet. But when we got there, you're going to see after he leaves the river, the other bear follows him. And we had seen the two of them upriver meet. And it was so weird because the male was fishing. Now, here you're going to see me shoot in just a second here. That's a compound bow there right now. Arrow How just went cool through it. Is that? Wow. This is why we do video podcasts now, Jason. This <laughs> that's where that's now, where we're seeing. Watch the watch this. There's the female. She's going to investigate. She doesn't know why her brother blew out of the river. And here's how we knew they were brother and sister. The male had been fishing up river where we first saw him by himself. And all of a sudden he put his nose in the air and rushed into the forest, disappeared. About a minute later, this other bear comes out of the forest on the other side of the river where we realized the first bear had, had thought there was danger, maybe a bigger male coming to him. So he skedaddles. She comes out into the river, and we could tell from the silhouette of her lower body parts that she's not a male. Well, after she starts fishing, he comes back out of the forest, and they meet in the middle of the river, and they touch noses and sniff each other. And we realize what we're witnessing is a... a uh, um, a, a, a long lost meeting of brother and sister because they'd been kicked out of the nest by their mother probably the preceding spring and uh, had just uh, met up accidentally fishing on this salmon river. Um, what convinced us that was true is what happened after I killed the male because when we found him on that gravel bar with all four legs stove up underneath him like he'd hit, been a cement truck that hit a seawall he wasn't tipped over on one side or the other. He was upright position, all of his legs underneath him. But in front of him on the dry gravel bar was a big wet spot. And his sister had come and sat right in front of his head for, until, evidently, until we came out of the brush and then she, she disappeared. But uh, it was quite a dramatic story. We put it all together and figured that they were siblings that finally met up with one another that very evening when we witnessed it. Wow. Yeah, that's, I, I've seen that bear. Yeah, in the museum. And, you know, the thing about that bear that's probably the the neatest thing is the teeth on that were broken and worn down. Yeah. And it's you look at that and you're like, wow, that's a, that's an old bear. That's a but Jason. That was not the brown bear. That was the grizzly with well, the video. You OK, was for the brown bear. Gotcha. And gotcha. he was a young male. He was probably no more than four or five years old. OK. Man that you just saw me put an arrow through. The grizz was something else again. Alaska Fish and Game was uh, dying to know how old he was because they knew he was very, very old. And they did a tooth study on him. And they aged him at 28. Wow. And I asked a bear biologist once, I said, what would that be in terms of uh, uh, human life? What would the human equivalent be? And he said, 28 years old for a bear. A bear is old if it, if it reaches its teens. He right. said 28 would be the human equivalent, 115 to 120. And as right. you said, his teeth were 
almost non-existent. He only had one canine left in his mouth, so I nicknamed him Old Snaggletooth. Yeah. Yeah, that was a neat because because that one was in the museum there, and wow, how how neat to look at that. You and know, they did that it. Bear, believe it or not, that bear um, was the largest grizzly taken anywhere in North America with any weapon in 04, 05, 06, 07, and 08. Wow, very cool. But all records are made to be broken, and uh, Rod Tobias of Pennsylvania broke that record with a grizzly taken not too many miles from where I shot that one. Uh, he killed it in, I think, in 011. Uh, no, he, uh, I think he killed it in, uh, see, I killed mine in 04. And uh, I think maybe Rod got his in 011. I know my my world record got uh, dethroned at the Pope and Young Banquet of, um, of 015. So it was the world record. Okay. Now, how many world records have you had? Only one Pope and Young. Just um, one. Okay. Right. Gotcha. But for SCI, I've actually had uh, three others, but none of them is still a world record. Okay. Yeah. I took a red. Just, I took a free ranging red stag in New Zealand um, with a recurve and a wooden arrow that for one year was the free ranging uh, red deer world record for the South Pacific. Nice. And I took a Columbia whitetail uh, in Oregon that um, was the world record for a while. And then I took a, uh, um, what was the other one? Oh, a lynx, a Canada lynx that was the SCI world record for a while. Okay. For archery. Very cool. Well, congratulations on those. I, I'm still I'm still looking for my first world record. Nobody goes out looking for a world <laughs> record. And the good Lord decides to put you in its path or him in your path. And, and then all you have to do is execute the right shot at the right time. But. Uh, I guess there are people that go out looking for world records and won't shoot anything less, but most of them uh, 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 come home empty-handed, hunt after hunt after hunt. They they eat a lot of tags. That's right. Yeah, uh, Dennis, tell us tell us a little bit about uh, your book. We went to your your website. Yeah, buy the book. All right. Um, uh, we, had, we had one of your books at a mountain archery fest, and it raffled off for nine hundred dollars. Yeah, it was 950 bucks. I couldn't believe it. I was there. Yeah. Um, that's the most that that limited edition has ever auctioned off for. There were three volume, three editions originally. The book came out in 08. And uh, the two artists who illustrated it, Hayden and Alan Lamson from Pocatello, Idaho, um, they met with me at, in Missoula, Montana at the National Visitor Center for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation on National Hunting and Fishing Day. That's when the book came out in the fall of 08. Hayden Lamson painted for almost two years for that book, um, nearly full time without a penny's worth of compensation. Uh, no artist before had ever painted an artist series of the North American Super Slam. So when I approached him, I knew I didn't want to create a book like Suck Adams's where, where every story had a, a, a grip and grin picture at the end. And, uh, you know, I don't have the kind of ego that requires that. So there are no pictures in my book of me and any dead animals at the recovery site. But what way more than replaces those kind of photos is the artwork of Hayden and his son, Dallin. Dallin contributed 38 black and white fine line graphite pencil drawings. And his father uh, painted 30 uh, oil paintings, one for each of the 29 species that introduces each chapter. And then one, a second one for the front cover, because I was lucky enough to end up with that world record grizzly. Um, SCI made a tremendous contribution to the book. 
because they allowed me to use that no charge, their colored maps of North America showing range and distribution of each species and subspecies, as well as all of their taxonomic and biological information on each species. So you have two pages of that kind of data right behind the color plate of, of that species in its natural habitat that introduces each of the 29 chapters into which I distributed my 104 stories of adventure and misadventure and miracles. Uh, and they're all arranged by, by species chapter. But um, it was a, a, a labor of love and a magnum opus that took me four years. I averaged 12 hours a day for four years writing that book. Wow. Well, it's a beautiful book. And it's if you haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's called Bear Bow, B-A-R-E, Bow. And it's definitely worth a look. If you like to bow hunt or if you appreciate wildlife, it's definitely, definitely worth a look. And what's the best place for people to find that, Dennis? Well, if they can remember the one word title of the book, Bear Bow, just put an S on it. Bearbows.com will take you to the book's website. And if you click on videos there, you can watch that video footage you just saw of the brown bear kill and also of the grizzly kill. I shot that grizzly from eight yards away, and that's pretty dramatic footage, too. Um, but uh, when you go to the book's website, uh, you can order the book right over the website by clicking on the Order Now button, and it transports you to Dallin Lamson's website. He's the one that takes all the orders. And I, I should explain that I no longer own a financial interest in the book uh, on purpose, because five years ago, I gave all the remaining unsold copies to the two artists who illustrated the book. They had donated their artwork gratis to the project back in uh, in 08 when the book was published. And um, once I reached the age of 75, I thought, boy, I don't want to be a book salesman the rest of my life. I'd like to be able to travel more with my wife and hunt more while I still have my good health. So I gave all the remaining copies to the, uh, the two artists. And right from the start, we did some long range planning and the books were printed in China um, came across the Pacific on a slow boat from China, literally, uh, to San Diego, where they were trucked from there to a warehouse in Pocatello, Idaho, where they've been ever since. The book came out in 08. So it was a natural. And I just, since the artists had given me their artwork for nothing, I thought, boy, um, I want to do something nice for them. So um, I gave them all the remaining unsold copies. And uh, whenever anybody orders now, they'll end up writing a check to Dallin Lamson. He's the one that did the 38 uh, wildlife um, black and white pencil drawings, which are phenomenal. He's every bit as good an artist as his dad. But he's also trying to raise six kids on his earnings as an artist. He has no other job. He paints seven days a week. Can you imagine the challenge in this day and age when fine art is appreciated less than ever before of trying to raise a family of eight on what you can get from selling your artwork? You know, the only way I'm going to make a living as a painter is if I'm painting houses. Yeah, that's about right. Well, Dallin is incredibly talented, but uh, now when uh, and I told him, I said I may hunt like an Indian, but I don't give gifts like an Indian, and uh, I'm not going to mooch off you. So when I want copies of my own book back, I'm going to be sending you a check, and two or three times a year, I'll send him a check so I can have copies to donate, like I did at that uh, Archery yeah. Mountain Festival, Dylan, um, for or for wildlife conservation fundraising. I gave a few as gifts at Christmas time this year, but I always send Alan a check to get copies of my own book back. <laughs> yeah, you should have worked that clause in there. So you got, you know, a few a year. Yeah, well, uh, he needs the money a lot more than I do at this point. So, uh, and then, I, 
I feel good about it. And then you do you do other writing as well. I know you just had an article in the most recent Outdoor Life magazine. And well, so- actually, yeah, I didn't write that article, Jason. Andrew McKean, who's the editor of Outdoor Life, he commissioned a, a, a friend of mine in Montana by the name of Paul Schnell, whom I only met a couple of years ago at a PBS banquet, the Professional Bowhunter Society banquet. He commissioned Schnell to do a feature profile about me and my bowhunting career. So that's what the article's about. Gotcha. And uh, I have to say, when I read it, um, McKean sent me the transcript of it a little a while just before it, it got published earlier this week. And uh, it sucked all the oxygen out of my lungs when I read it because uh, nobody's ever written or said anything about uh, me like that. And I just, uh, you know, it was an incredibly humbling experience to read that story, I have to tell you. Well, it was well-deserved, in my opinion. Well, thank you, Dylan. Well deserved, and Andrew McCain, um, you know he's he's since become a good friend of the club, Jason. I, I would say came to convention yeah. and and did a really good job of kind of covering our rebrand uh, for convention. And I've learned this about Andrew and the other guys um, at Outdoor Life. They're really good at giving credit where credit is due, um, but they only give it where it's due. So um, I would say well earned, Dennis. Well earned. Well, th- thank you, Dylan. I mean, you know, it's ironic you, you mentioned McKean and the Pope Young Convention. I did not know he was there in July. And of course, as you know, I gave a couple of seminars there. Andrew McKean didn't attend either one. My name, if it was on his radar at all, it was in such small print he couldn't read it. Uh, and uh, um, what happened was that Paul Schnell was there. I had, in fact, I Paul had not been a member of Pope Young. But um, I signed him up as a new member and, and invited him to come and sit at our table with my wife and my, my son and my two grandsons who also came. And uh, so Paul and I got a lot better acquainted. But it just happened, coincidentally, that during the social hour one night, Paul Schnell and Andrew McKean ran into each other. Both had a sign of uh, their name tag on their chest, saying Montana. They hadn't met before. So they started talking. You talk about a small world. They started talking. And uh, had a much longer conversation later in the weekend when Paul started talking to Andrew about me. And he said, Andrew, you really need to do a story on this guy, Dennis Dunn, and here's why. Well, that's what got Andrew interested. And one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, it's it's history. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. And and it all happened at our convention. Exactly. So that's, that's even better. I like that. So, you know, I have to ask, Dennis, because you've done this for a long time. You've got, and and like I said, we've had a chance to visit, and so I've heard some of your stories. If you had to pick one out of the vast array of, of stories that you have, which one would it be? Well, maybe that's another way of asking a, a, a slightly different question I get asked a lot is, what was your most, what was your favorite hunt, or what, what hunt, hunt meant the most to you? And that's a hard one to answer. I mean, would it be my world record grizzly? How do you top something like a world record grizzly, you know? Um, but for sheer drama, for sheer adrenaline rush, for sheer Rocky Mountain High, or in, in this case, Canadian Mountain High, I do it yourself. I, I did a do-it-yourself solo backpack hunt in British Columbia for stone sheep. That probably is would be the number one uh, hunt for me, I guess, because of the odds against it. Stone sheep are so tough. I think they're the hardest of the four species of sheep to get within bow range of. Um, I didn't take him with a stick bow. I shot him with a compound from 11 yards. But um, 
that uh, that story in my book is is uh, one of the, the best ones there for sure. Um, people might ask, well, how could you do a solo backpack hunt for stone sheep? Don't you have to hire a guide? The fact of the matter is I married a Canadian and I was hunting stone sheep as a resident of British Columbia. So I could hunt by myself, but I never saw another human being the whole week I was on the mountain. When I wow. came off the mountain with that sheep on my back, but by far the heaviest pack I ever carried, I figured it weighed about 140 pounds, counting my wow. binoculars and my my spotting scope and my bow and everything. I think I was carrying 140 pounds down that mountain, but I was in set, on such an adrenaline rush, I I practically floated off the mountain. I fell a number of times, but on the slope being so steep like that, even with a really heavy pack, you can find a way to get back into the into the shoulder straps with your feet below you and use the steep slope to help get you back up on your feet. Wow. That's uh so stone sheep. What what would be the one what's a moment that you'd like to have back? What's that one arrow you'd like to just send one more time? Wow. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. Nice, uh, Jason. You came up with you came up with something never been asked. I know. O- only on the Pope and Young podcast, Dylan. I'm going to be just here for the hard that. questions. I'm sure I'm going to be thinking about that question for a week and probably come up with six different <laughs> answers. As I think of, of boy, I'll tell you, I I have missed some incredible trophy animals, and some of them I've missed because I was more interested in in getting a photograph of them before I tried to kill them. And you seldom get a chance to do both. That moment of truth, yeah. when it comes, it's usually so fleeting that if you use it to take a photograph, you may never get a chance to draw an arrow. Yeah. Um, and if you use it to shoot the arrow, you probably never get a, get a chance to shoot photograph the animal except uh, dead on the ground if you if your arrow was was correctly aimed. But um, I don't know. I I I I think I do have an answer to your question. In my attempt to upgrade my Alaska moose, which I finally did in 016 with a nice Pope and Young bull, about a 57, 58 inch spread, but he had 10 brow um, points on his brow palms. So he was a real mature animal. He wasn't in one of these 60, 70 inch moose, but I had been on about five hunts trying to upgrade that moose, at least four others. And one of those was a situation where the guide and I went down river in this jet boat for about 10 miles below camp. And it was an area that the outfitter had not sent a hunter into in 10 years. So we knew there was, there was going to be a lot of moose there and some big bulls. And uh, boy, we, we, we put ashore and had no longer got ourselves just inside under the canopy of the forest. When my guide uh, let out a, a cow call and we heard a, a moose grunt right away and it's coming in fast and furious was this huge bull. I mean, it was just like you flipped a switch and here he was about to jump in your lap. I didn't even have time to get um, anything more than an arrow on my string when he was stopped, he stopped 30 yards from me, broadside. And I need to explain that I had a camel cap where my wife at my request just before I left on this hunt had sewn a piece of an old Pope and Young uh, uh, green uh, t-shirt that I bought at one of the Pope and Young conventions. She'd taken a piece of it and sewn it to the bottom of the of the face mask that came down out of the back of the cap. I, I couldn't draw. Um, uh, I was hunting with a, a stick bow at this point. I could not draw to full draw and hit my anchor without the bowstring hitting the rim of my cap. So as soon as I saw that bull, 
coming at me. I flipped the cap around and the face mask fell out of the front of it. Um, but it had this bib that she uh, extended it with so I could tuck it inside my shirt and it wouldn't be a problem. The drama was so quick and so intense. All I got done was the cap flipped around, an arrow on the string, and then I'm totally focused on that bullet 30 yards from me who does not yet know that we are there. But when he starts to move straight ahead, I can see there is a bit of a, of a lane through the brush that I can kind of parallel him with and draw closer to him. And I can see that if he goes about 10 yards, I'll have a, 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 a little lane to shoot through. So I do that. And by that, now I've forgotten about the fact I haven't tucked in that, that bib off my face mask. That was the huge mistake that I made because a few seconds later, he stopped broadside to me. I came to full draw 20 yards, might've been 21 or two, but e easy shot for a target as big as a set of moose lungs. And when I released that arrow, the bowstring picked up that extra cloth hanging off my face and it had jerked the arrow a foot to the right from where I aimed it. The arrow hit him and the bottom, the, the elevation was perfect for the middle of the lungs, but it hit the uh, the very bottom of the shoulder blade. And of course, you don't kill a moose by hitting him in the shoulder blade with an arrow, maybe not even with a bullet. But um, that was that, you know, I had drawn blood and in, uh, in the Northwest Territories and the Yukon up there, as well as Alaska, have a one a one stick to one arrow rule. If you draw blood, you either recover that animal and go home happy, or if you don't recover it, you can't hunt another one. So okay. there was not a blood trail that was worth following, and not more than we couldn't follow him more than hundred yards or so, and that was that. We never, and I had to fly out the next day. My hunt was over. Wow! That's, if I had a shot back, That's it would the be one. that one, I guess, because this was a bull that had thirty points on his antlers. And it wow. had at least a 60, 64 uh, inch spread, some, something like that. And my guide said, without a doubt, that was a Boone and Crockett bull. And you just blew it. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. You got to love a guy. You know, you got to love the guys who are just straight shooters. It's like, yeah. yeah. Problem Boy. was, I wasn't a straight shooter. My arrow shot crooked that day. Yeah. Yeah. That's a uh, guy that's just like, you know, that was a monster bull. Thanks for screwing that one up. There goes my tip. Well, you know, I can understand that guide being really upset and out of shape, uh, out of kilter, because when I flew in, the bow hunter he'd had with him the week before had wounded a big bull, but they never recovered either. So I was the second bow hunter in a row he'd had in camp. Yeah. Rooted up and deprived him of a victory as a guide. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's you know, we all have a couple we'd like to have back. And so that's, that's towards the top of your list. That's a good one. Yeah. It's yeah. You, sometimes it just happens. You, you know, you mentioned that you just, you don't realize how fast things go down until you're in the middle of it. And it's, and, and you know, too, that they often say bow hunting is Murphy's law in action. If something can go wrong, it usually does. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a great story. The, the one that got away. So, well, well, Dennis, one of the things we ask every guest that we have on this show is what is an item when you find yourself in the Yukon or, or up on the mountain, what's an item, maybe a non-traditional type item that, that you find in your, in your pack that you wouldn't want to go without? 
Well, in recent years, it's changed from what it was. Nowadays, um, I take a Bible with me. And when I spent 71 days in a double bull blind in Arizona on the Kaibab Plateau in, uh, from May into August of 2020, I read the entire New Testament and half of the Old Testament. And uh, if you want some evidence of the good Lord at work in my life, during those 71 days I spent in that blind with salt blocks out in front of me, hoping that the, those uh, that a big old bull near the end of his life would leave the park. And they almost always leave at night. Most of their visits to the salts are nocturnal. Mm -hmm. So your chance to see one in daylight hours when you, you can hunt them, shoot legally, are, are pretty limited. The outfitter told me, he said, the average number of days that my hunters have had to spend in the blind before they got their look at the first bison, regardless of whether it was a bull, cow, or calf, was 14 days. Wow. So they got their, I had seven visits only on seven days. There was one visit. I, one day I had two visits, two groups on the same day. But there were only seven days out of 71 when I ever even saw a bison. Wow. And uh, three days before my tag was to expire, and I had passed up a couple of Pope and Young bulls because I was holding out for, um, I knew with a governor's tag, which is what I had, allowed me to hunt for a full year. I knew that that tag deserved my giving it my every effort. Uh, to the max. And I told myself and my outfitter that was helping me on this hunt that I was not going to settle for just any bull. It was going to have to be an old bull near the end of its life, Boone and Prophet quality type. And sure enough, three days before my tag expired, the good Lord delivered that lone bull uh, to me wow. at five, eight, five in the evening. Came in all by himself, as quiet as a mouse. I was reading at the time when he came in. Uh, um, and all of a sudden I heard a voice say, Dennis, look up. And I looked out the window and here he is a dozen yards from me approaching the salt directly at me. He spent 15 minutes on that salt block, never giving me a shot angle. Oh, wow. A head on shot with a big bison is, is nothing you ever want to consider with a bow and arrow. But I knew from one previous experience I'd had earlier in the hunt when it's a similar thing happened that when he turned to go, I'd have a fraction of a second is all to get that arrow off. So as soon as he lifted his first front hoof to turn, uh, I drew, I already had the arrow on the string. The broadhead was sticking out the window of the, of the blind. The bottom end of the recurve was in the dirt on the bottom of the tent. My fingers were on the string. And as soon as he lifted that first hoof, um, I drew and released the arrow instantly. And again, I feel the hand of God guided the arrow all the way to the sweet spot because that animal was on the ground before I could even put a second arrow on the string. He only wow. traveled 18 yards from where he was when the arrow struck him, and he was stone dead in 30 seconds. Wow. And he weighed almost Incredible. a ton. Wow. That's... He did make Boone and Crockett on the green score, but by the time the shrinkage took place, and you accounted for the differences in girth measurements side to side, he didn't quite uh, make Boone and Crockett, which is 115. But his net Pope and Young score was 112 and change. Nice. Wow. That's That's a big boy right there. He produced yeah. 605 pounds of cut wrapped boneless meat. Nice. Well, congratulations on that one for sure. Guess what uh, I did with all that meat? What? Well, I'd eat it. I, I gave it to the two artists who illustrated my book. Oh, very nice. Hayden Lamson has 37 grandchildren. He and his wife drove down oh. to Arizona a few days after um, uh, the, the animal was uh, cut up by the butcher uh, in Flagstaff and in his truck and picked up all the meat and spent the next week distributing it to all his family members throughout Idaho and Utah. Wow. That's a great story.
So, well, you've got, so it's the Barren Ground Caribous. You're the next one up on your list. The last one, yeah. The last one. And then after that, what's after that? Once you get the, once you, uh, once you get that one in Pope and Young, what's after that? Well, I, I love your, your optimistic uh, outlook for me. At my age, you never know. I'll be 82 this spring. And, you know, once you get into your 80s, you never know which hunt's going to be your last one. Yeah. God knows, but he's not necessarily going to tell you in advance. Well, uh, maybe the one I went on last summer was my last one. But if my good health continues, uh, God willing, I'll have another one this summer if I'm successful with this caribou. Um, then on my bucket list, I think next would be a, a really uh, trophy quality mule deer. I've never taken a, I have a Popignon muley. It was the first Popignon animal I ever shot. If you can mm. believe it, it was a horn that made the score 140, a little over 140. Wow. Um, and what was so funny about that, Plan St. Charles lived in my backyard, Northwest Archery there in Burien, uh, south of Seattle. And uh, uh, a brand new measurer from the Seattle area named Mark Halgan had scored that mule deer for me. It had a nice third point on one side, but it wasn't matched on the other side. So that, that third point, which was about nine inches long, was worthless in terms of score. So when Pope and Young uh, got it back at, in, uh, at their headquarters, they called up Glenn and said, we just raised the minimum for typical mule deer in our records committee from 135 to 140, precisely so that no horn could ever make the book. Would you be willing to call this guy Dunn up and ask him if he would deliver his rack to you so you could remeasure it for us? Because we're not convinced that, you know, this is a brand new measure. We want to make sure this really is a 140 buck. So Glenn called me up. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't known him at the time. Um, no, that's not true. I, I had. I had met him. I met him in actually in Asin Creek hunting one fall uh, a year or two earlier. So he called me up and I, I took the rack into him and he measured. And he, he increased the score from 140 and one eighth to 140 and three eighths, which is what it went into the book at. And as a result of that particular deer, that the next time the records committee met, they increased the minimum for typical muleys to 145 for 140. <laughs> Just to keep out the forked horns. That's right. <laughs> but I've never taken a four by four muley with brow tines. Yeah. Uh, and I, if I could take a really mature um, mule deer and, you know, in the 170, 190 class, that would be the cat's meow. And um, that would be the next dream on the top of my bucket list. You know, I've had, you know, growing up in Oregon, that's grew up chasing mule deer. You know, I had black, kind of like you, black tails in the backyard and mule deer just over the hill. Mm hmm. And, uh, boy, I've had a, a rough, rough luck when I was 14, I had a shot, a nice three point out on my own and, and some other hunters came in and claimed it and there were 14 of them and one of me. So they got it. And then, uh, then I shot a nice three point, um, in the, up in the Oregon Cascades and I didn't have, I was going to have it mounted. I didn't have it mounted. And then a, a couple of years later, I was like, you know, I'm going to have that thing mounted. So I took that one and a three point I shot up in uh, Eastern Washington to a taxidermist and wound up both of those got just disappeared. The t I showed up at the taxidermist six months later just to see how things were going on my animals and uh, both my bucks and my money and everything in his house was gone he'd been evicted or foreclosed or something and oh, ne never to be heard from again so i've had a bunch of mule deer or three three muleys you know stolen 
And uh, I usually have a mule deer tag for Eastern Oregon. And I've just never had, you know, I'm usually focused on elk. And, and so I, I don't chase deer quite as much. And then this year I had a, uh, I, it was the first year Oregon went to a draw for mule deer for a bow in this particular area I was in. And so I did not have a mule deer tag and I had two beautiful Pope and young bucks in, you know, 19 yards for a long time. And it was that I'll tell you what, if I had to say, that's the arrow I'd like to have back. The, the arrow I'd like to have back is not having that tag in my pocket. First time I haven't had a mule deer tag there in in the last several years. And just to see and those you have a tag you could buy over the counter. Or? It used to be, it used to be an over the counter tag. And then this year it went to a draw. And I was like, you know, I'm going to focus on antelope and elk. Um, so I didn't want to burn my points. And and uh, turned out it was a mistake because there's just two really beautiful, mature bucks. So I'm with you. I, I Mule deer are on my list. I've, I've chased them for a long time. And I've just never had that that one that you just dream about. So, By the way, for those of your viewers who can see what's behind me, the oil painting on the wall behind me here, and this is, I'm up in our master bedroom, uh, is a, a painting done by Hayden Lampson of a couple of mountain goats there, you can see. And just to the side of it is uh, my upgraded uh, woodland caribou. Okay. From Newfoundland. Very nice. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, Dennis, I'll tell you what, um, thank you so much for, for all you do for bow hunting. You're a great ambassador to the sport. Um, always a good supporter of, of Pope and Young and, and we sure appreciate you. Can't wait to, to see you again up on the mountain and, and share some more stories, but I just want to thank you for taking some time to, to share with us today. It's been my great pleasure, uh, Jason. Uh, you told me some time ago, you wanted to do this and I've been looking forward to it ever since. Yeah. It's I'm, I'm glad it worked out. So, um, anyway, Dennis, thanks for all you do and appreciate you being here with us. Have a great day. You too, and Merry Christmas to everybody. Merry Christmas. A blessed Christmas and Happy New Year. And, and we will see everybody in 2022. Looking forward.